Hello and welcome to this episode of War Stories, a year at the Tyneside Cinema. My name is Simon Dowling. This episode I will be talking about three films that I've seen over the last week at the Tyneside Cinema. They are Steven Spielberg's The Post, the Barack Obama documentary Final Year, and Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights. The first film I saw this week at the Tyneside Cinema was Steven Spielberg's The Post, uh, starring Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. It tells the story of the Washington Post's publishing of the Pentagon Papers, which were a series of documents that uncovered a conspiracy, so to speak, about the continuation of the Vietnam War, despite the American administration knowing that it was a war they were never going to win. It stars Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks as Catherine Graham and Ben Bradley, uh, real-life characters. So Catherine Graham was the owner of the Washington Post and Ben Bradley was the editor. Steven Spielberg is currently in post-production for Ready Player One, which is a film that a lot of people are anticipating. It's an incredibly well-loved novel, especially amongst nerds, so a lot of people are excited to see what he's going to do with the film. As the film is primarily CGI, he has decided to, like he has done in the past with uh, Tintin and Warhorse, release two films in incredibly close proximity. In early 2017, he read the script for The Post and decided he definitely 100% wanted to make this movie and was going to do it fairly promptly. Now, only someone with the prowess of Steven Spielberg could pull people like Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks together in order to get this film off the ground. But not only does he have them, he has an incredibly stacked supporting cast. Um, Bob Odenkirk and David Cross are together, who are a comedy duo He's got Tracy Letts, Bradley Whitford, Sarah Paulson, Alison Brie, Jesse Plemons, Bruce Greenwood, Matthew Reese, Zach Woods. It is endless. Oh, and not forgetting Michael Stuhlbarg, who is in three Best Picture nominees this year. I really enjoyed The Post. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a Steven Spielberg film that, to me, reminded me most of... Uh, Strangely enough, Munich, which was, if you've not seen Munich, a procedural film about assassinations in response to the murder of um, the Olympic team in Munich 1972. One of the peculiar things about Munich is the way that Steven Spielberg kind of adapted his classic directorial style and made this kind of 70s thriller in 2005 or around then when Munich came out. Steven Spielberg is a, as one of my favourite podcasts, Blank Check, mentioned, was kind of identified as the first person who's fluent in cinema. He can walk into a room, he knows where he wants his actors to be, he knows where he wants the cameras to be, he knows where the light needs to be, and he can just bang out these incredible films, which is how he can make, in in many circumstances, he's made multiple films within a year. Obviously, it's easy when you're doing one mocap and then one traditional film, but still... It's impressive that in this small amount of space that he's given himself to make this film, he's made a Best Picture nominee. I won't delve too much into the story. Again, it's a, it's a true story, and I don't want to talk too much about The Post. I feel like I don't need to encourage people to go and see The Post. As I mentioned, it reminded me a lot of Munich in that it's not a war film, but it feels like a war film. There are these kind of almost spy-like long zoomy shots, and he 
generally pans and moves the camera around, which he does a lot in this film, but he still also has this kind of tense, like I say, spy camera kind of vibe to it. Um, the pacing of the film is fantastic. To me, it felt like a war movie about the Vietnam War that was set outside the Vietnam War. Like I mentioned with The Darkest Hour kind of being a good accompaniment to Dunkirk, I feel like this film would be a great accompaniment to one of the more damning uh, Vietnam War films like Full Metal Jacket or Apocalypse Now. One of the key things about the film is how contemporary it feels. The film is about freedom of the press and specifically about the president at the time, Ronald Reagan, trying to rule with an iron fist over the press and the Supreme Court having to make a ruling on whether the staff at a newspaper should be going to prison for contempt of court for publishing these uh, Pentagon papers which were heavily critical of the government. Obviously it rings true today we live in the time of, of fake news and I imagine when Spielberg read the script early in the year and said yep I want to make this and made it fast it's because of how true it rings and at times it does go a little bit heavy-handed especially towards the end of the film it very much drills this message home about kind of freedom of the press and the press is there to hold the president to account so it's amoral for the president to kind of make these decisions about what the press should and shouldn't be able to say which is exactly what Donald Trump is doing. That might spoil the film for some people. It might feel a little bit too heavy-handed for some who who don't like to be preached at by the cinema. But yes, it's heavy-handed, but it's mildly important. And there's a reason why, for such a straight drama, it's been nominated for, for Best Picture. And I think the Academy are making a point. I know it's a Steven Spielberg joint with a John Williams score, but I feel like they are making a point by by nominating it. I feel like I don't need to say anything about the performances. It's Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, who are two of the greatest living actors, giving incredible performances. Meryl Streep giving a performance that, you know, she always delves into the role in such an incredible way. And the Streep that you expect is not the Streep that you're given here. And it's really good and subtle. And Catherine Graham is, is at times seen as a little bit weak, which is not something that Meryl Streep is renowned for. I mean, she played Margaret Thatcher, and you've got her character in The Devil Wears Prada. A lot of her most critically acclaimed roles are her playing very strong and very aggressive characters. Catherine Graham is not that character, and it is fantastic. Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks. He plays Ben Bradley. He's got a little bit of an accent going on in this film, which I really enjoyed. And also, there's nothing I really enjoy more than when Tom Hanks gets to swear. And he does that a few times in this film. I think the standout performance for me was Bob Odenkirk, who it's great to see in a Steven Spielberg film. We know he has this dramatic prowess from Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. He's obviously famously known as a comedian. And he is funny here, but to get to see him kind of flex his acting muscles, I think he has a great dramatic career ahead of him. There's not much more to say about The Post. Like I said, it's the Steven Spielberg film. If you go and see it, you're going to enjoy it. I don't think anyone is going to think it's a bad film. Like I say, some people might find it a little bit heavy-handed on the allegorical message, but it's still fantastic and definitely up there with his, his better films of the last kind of 10, 15 years. Another film I saw this week was a documentary called The Final Year, which is about Barack Obama's last year as president, directed by Greg Barker. 
Now, the film doesn't necessarily focus on Barack Obama. It's more about his administration, focusing on three key players in that administration. So, Samantha Power, who was uh, America's uh, UN delegate, John Kerry, who was the Secretary of State, and Ben Rhodes, who was kind of Barack Obama's communications manager, speechwriter. He'd worked with him throughout his career from, from Senator onwards. It's a good documentary, but not a great documentary. I didn't find Ben Rhodes a particularly good subject for the documentary. It starts as it catches him in a scandal in which he's belittled the press corps and then has to go and stand in front of those people and try and convince them that he is the best spokesperson for Barack Obama and that he believes that they are doing a good job. And he's a bit of a broken man. I mean, there's also the element of it being his final year in the West Wing and I guess that is taking its toll on him. We see... Trump's rise to power, mostly through Ben's eyes. Um, There's a moment where he's in Laos and talking about the potential of Trump being president with some some young cafe workers, and he's convinced that there's no way that it's going to win. Obviously, in hindsight, it adds a weight to the documentary that wouldn't ordinarily be there. It was going to be filmed and released regardless of the result of the election, and there is a weight added to it because we know the outcome of the election that I feel wouldn't have been there had Hillary have won and the documentary might have even been a little bit worse. Samantha Power, the UN delegate, is a much more engaging subject and we follow her around the world. Um, But one particularly difficult scene uh, is her speaking to some activists who are trying to to recover the the girls that were kidnapped by Boko Haram, which is really affecting. Greg Barker, who directed it, does a really good job of, of holding back a lot of the emotion, but that adding a weight. So just as Samantha's about to break down, the camera cuts away and moves on, so you, you kind of feel the wave of the emotion, and then it gets cut off, but it allows you time to reflect upon what you've seen. The final subject of the documentary is the marvellous John Kerry, and it discusses a little bit about his background as a, as a Vietnam War vet and his impact and his hard work in the final year of the Barack Obama administration, especially when it comes to his negotiations with Iran and Syria. The John Kerry sections of the documentary were not necessarily my favourite because I think Samantha Power was the most engaging and most interesting subject because she's not someone that I personally was was aware of or would have read about otherwise, but I think John Kerry's impact in the final year of Barack Obama's administration is portrayed so well by the documentary that in hindsight to know that a lot of his hard work has been dismantled again adds weight to the documentary that may not have been there had Hillary won. Again, back to Ben Rhodes, there are a few segments that I feel have kind of been shoehorned in to make you sympathise with him a little bit. Not not sections of the documentary that paint him in a bad light, but in fact the opposite, things that try and make you paint him in a good light when really he's not coming across very well on screen. And like I say, I think his kind of third of the documentary is the part that I, I didn't particularly enjoy. We do get some one-on-one time with Barack Obama, but we see him mostly pre- and post-speeches that he made on his final year as president. The other thing that the documentary does, which I found quite interesting, was a lot of other filmmakers would have gone really heavy-handed on the Donald Trump angle. This film ends 
just after the election, we get a brief glimpse of Donald Trump. We see him in the on TVs in the background. It's you know it's almost like an AR game for Cloverfield. It's kind of spotting the big evil in the background, and then eventually it's going to come and rear its head. But we he's only briefly briefly on scene. Um, the moment where Barack Obama and Donald Trump met and shake hands and no, there will not be any questions, which was a very impacting moment in the the handover from Barack to Trump, um, which told the public everything they needed to know about Barack's impression of what was going to happen. Another favourite moment of mine is an evening where Samantha Power has about 50 really incredible women in a room to watch the election and watch history happen where they're going to get the first female president And there's a moment where she has a daughter in her arms just as it looks like Donald Trump is going to win. And she just grabs her a little bit tighter and it really, really hit me. It's an HBO documentary and it's ripe for being the sort of thing that uh, BBC Storyville will show. So it'll definitely pop up on TV. It was only on at the Tyneside Cinema for a week. So if you didn't catch it, they might show it again another time, but like I say, it's it's almost definitely going to be on television at some point, and I would recommend catching it if you can, or if you're lucky enough to have access to HBO, then you can watch it on there. The final film I saw this week was a film by, in true cliched film fan fashion, one of my favourite filmmakers, Paul Thomas Anderson. Paul Thomas Anderson has his own subreddit. It's not particularly active and it's mostly just spoilers for his new movies, but someone posted something really hilarious the other day and I thought I would read a little bit out for you just so you can basically decide whether to turn off before I start pouring my heart out over Boogie Nights. The letter starts, Dear Men, Thank you for telling me who critically acclaimed Academy Award-nominated writer Paul Thomas Anderson is. Thank you for telling me he's your favourite director. You must really know your stuff. Here I was, floating around with no clue who this guy is. That must be why I literally have a huge gaping hole in my brain. All the missing Paul Thomas Anderson information. It goes on like this. Um, Another one of my favourite sentences is, I love hearing your hot take on how Punch Drunk Love was the film that finally legitimised the career of actor Adam Sandler. <laughs> as the, as it progresses, it, it starts to mention Boogie Nights more and more because I guess it, there must be a little bit of a cliche that Boogie Nights is the easiest Paul Thomas Anderson film to mention as your favourite, whereas everyone knows it's Magnolia, right? It's not my it's not my favourite, but the, the, the letter ends with um, thanks for giving me your list of Paul Thomas Anderson's films ranked from best to worst According to you, owner of a Magnolia poster, thank you for telling me that Boogie Nights is at the top of that list. Thank you for telling me Mark Wahlberg is your favourite actor because of Boogie Nights. Thank you for giving me more fun facts about Mark Wahlberg and Boogie Nights. I love that. Thank you for explaining the gritty sensitivity of Boogie Nights. Thank you for Boogie Nights. Thanks, Boogie Nights. And then proceeds to say Boogie Nights about another 40 times. Signed, sincerely, woman who's never seen Boogie Nights. I guess... <laughs> That says a lot about how Paul Thomas Anderson is kind of portrayed. <laughs> um, he's he's, he's a, a very simple filmmaker to have as your favourite. He is so concise and he's a very easy filmmaker to digest um, when it comes to the basics of, of what makes up a good film. Boogie Nights is his second feature film. It was preceded by Hard Eight, which not many people have seen. It was originally called Sydney. Um, 
It's about uh, a, a gentleman played by John C. Riley, who's kind of down on his luck, who gets taken in by Philip Baker Hall, who plays a gentleman named Sidney, and he helps him, teaches him how to gamble better and kind of adopts him a little bit as a son. It's a fantastic film and it is on Netflix and I would recommend people watch it. It's very easy to see where Paul Thomas Anderson's career was going from watching that with his use of, of long shots and things. I don't need to sell you Boogie Nights. It's it's an incredibly famous film. It's it's kind of an 8.0 on IMDb sort of thing and, and an 85 on Metacritic. It's an incredibly popular movie and a very easy film to put on and appreciate. I'd like to talk particularly about one scene... Boogie Nights is, is about the porn industry and about the, the rise of stardom um, of a young gentleman named Eddie Adams who goes by Dirk Diggler on screen, played by Mark Wahlberg. Um, it also stars John C. Riley, Burt Reynolds, Don Cheadle, Heather Graham, William H. Macy and Julianne Moore in one of my favourite Julianne Moore roles. But I'd like to talk about a scene in which um, Dirk Diggler, played by Mark Wahlberg, and Reed Rothschild played by John C. Riley, go with their, their friend Todd, played by Thomas Jane, to a particularly weird gentleman's house called Rahad Jackson, played by Alfred Molina. Um, the scene is absolutely perfect, in my opinion. It is, I guess, compared to Tarantino, but I guess because of the violence and the absurdity of it all. But the... F- kind of the first part of the film is very straight and uh, very ordinary, the whole 70s disco era. There is a dance scene, which is weird, but not out of place for the 1970s. The, the second half of the film, the 1980s, gets a lot darker, and the film has been getting progressively darker and darker as the film leads up to this point. <laughs> um, and then it really knocks you for six with this absolutely hilarious but incredibly tense scene what happens is um todd played by thomas jane decides to sell rahad a uh, half a kilo of baking soda as cocaine um so they turn up at his house while he's listening to a song uh, called sister christian which i've never heard in any other context other than on the soundtrack to boogie nights um it's his hair metal song um i believe their wikipedia says uh that they're incredibly famous in japan which uh you know hair metal was was massive and metal in general is is massive there and it's this really anthemic driving powerful song and alfred molina draped in a in a silk gown with no top on is dancing around getting really excited but the most peculiar thing about the scene is a young chinese man who is seemingly alfred molina's lover um, is just habitually setting off firecrackers. So he's lighting a firecracker, throwing it in the air, and it's popping. Now, the tension in the scene as they're worried about being shot because they're selling half a kilo of baking soda as cocaine is amplified by the absurdity of there constantly being the sound of a firecracker exploding, therefore the constant sound of a gunshot. The reactions of the the three guys are incredible. Todd kind of stays incredibly straight, whereas Reed flinches every time, and John C. Riley sells it so well in that sometimes he won't flinch, and then boom, he flinches again. <laughs> then the song changes to Jesse's Girl uh, by Rick Springfield, which is an absolute masterpiece. And there's this long, lingering shot of Mark Wahlberg's character, Dirk Diggler, as... 
Alfred Molina's dancing in front of him, singing in more often than not the wrong words to, to Jesse's girl. And every time he looks to his left, he sees this huge bouncer with a with an automatic weapon strapped to his side, measuring out the cocaine, making sure that he's not going to taste it. And he looks to his right and he sees this this man setting off firecrackers. And the, sh- the, the camera lingers on Dirk Diggler's face for for what seems like a lifetime, as Mark Wahlberg gives this performance, which reminds me of Jack Nicholson in The Shining, where he just changes his face to appreciate the mania of what is going on, while, like I say, soundtracked by Rick Springfield, Jesse's girl, Alfred Molina, topless in a silk nightgown. Um, I mean, I won't tell you where where the scene goes, but it's certainly my favourite scene in Boogie Nights. Um, and I don't need to sell the rest of the film to you. It's an absolute masterpiece, so you should definitely watch it. Um, it, it must be on a, a streaming service. If not, it's it's worth renting. His use of long shots, the, the, the twists and turns, the absurdity of the entire film. It, it, an incredible performance uh, by Philip Seymour Hoffman as, as Scotty, who, in a very strange way, reminds me of, I think, Chris... Uh, the son in Family Guy, <laughs> there the must have been an influence there. And like I say, my one of my favourite Julianne Moore performances as as Maggie. The film is it's two and a half hours long, but there isn't a wasted second in the entire film. It's better than the the dark absurdity of Pulp Fiction, and but kind of gets compared to it quite a lot. But I personally think it's it's a lot better. And and Paul Thomas Anderson's one of my favourite filmmakers, and. I'm going to see another film of his uh, as thankfully because the um, Paul Thomas Anderson season is still on at the Tyneside Cinema so I'm going to see Magnolia um, on on Saturday which I'll I'll do a podcast about that's my f- second favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film personally my favorite's Punch Drunk Love which was the film that finally legitimized the career of actor Adam Sandler star of The Waterboy and Hotel Transylvania 2 anyway I'll leave it there Thank you for listening. Again, go to Letterboxd. My username is TheGoSlow, and you can read a little bit more about what I've said. Films like Boogie Nights I haven't written too much about because, you know, it's all about the star rating. If I started writing about Boogie Nights, I'd never stop writing about Boogie Nights. It's 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 unbelievable for, for a film from such a young filmmaker as Paul Thomas Anderson was at the time. Uh, the Tyneside have also just announced that their next season is another one of my favourite filmmakers, Guillermo del Toro, and they're really throwing some deep cuts in there they're showing chronos they're showing mimic on 35 millimeter which i'm gonna take my wife to see because she's a she's a big fan of horror movies and a big fan of game del toro but she's never seen mimic and i think there's a few times where we've i used to have it on dvd where we've gone to watch it on dvd and i've thought no there will be a time where i'll get to see this film in the cinema and i do get to see mimic in the cinema they're also showing hellboy pan's labyrinth the only films they're not showing are pacific rim and, and crimson peak uh, which I watched recently on a train back from London. And let me tell you that it's not a train-appropriate film when you're sitting next to a very polite old man. Uh, there's a lot of blood and a lot of incest. Anyway, thanks for listening to War Stories, Yeah, at the Tyneside Cinema. My name's Simon Dowling. <laughs> <laughs>